The Bluest Eye, page 132. See, Father, he is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, Father, smile, smile. When Charlie was four years, four days old, his mother wrapped him in two blankets and one newspaper and placed him on a junk heap by the railroad. His great-aunt Jimmy, who had seen her niece carrying a bundle out of the back door, rescued him. She beat his mother with a razor strap and wouldn't let her near the baby after that. Aunt Jimmy raised Charlie herself, but took delight sometimes in telling him how she had saved him. He gathered from that from her that his mother wasn't right in the head, but he never had a chance to find out, because she ran away shortly after the razor strap and no one had heard of her since. Charlie was grateful of having been saved, except sometimes... Sometimes, when he watched Aunt Jimmy eating collars with her fingers, sucking her four gold teeth, or smelled her when she wore the asafoetida bag around her neck, or when she made him sleep with her for warmth in winter and he could see her old, wrinkled breasts sagging in her nightgown, then he wondered whether it would have been just as well to have died there, down in the rim of a tire under a soft black Georgia sky. He had four years of school before he got courage enough to ask his aunt who and where his father was. That fuller boy, I believe it was, his aunt said. He was hanging around then, but he'd taken off pretty quick before you was born. I think he'd gone to Macon. Him or his brother. Maybe both. I hear old man Fuller say something about it once. What name he have? asked Charlie. Fuller foolish. I mean, what his given name? Oh, she closed her eyes to think and sighed. Can't recollect nothing no more. Sam, was it? Yeah, Samuel. No, no, it wasn't. It was Samson. Samson Fuller. How come y'all didn't name me Samson? Charlie's voice was low. What for? He wasn't nowhere around when you was born. Your mama didn't name you nothing. The nine days wasn't up before she throwed you on the junk heap. When I got you, I named you myself on the ninth day. You named after my dead brother, Charles Breedlove. A good man. Ain't no Samson never come to no good end. Charlie didn't ask anything else. Two years later, he quit school to take a job at Tyson's Feed and Grain Store. He swept up, ran errands, weighed bags, and lifted them onto the drays. Sometimes they let him ride with the drayman, a nice old man called Blue Jack. Blue used to tell him old-timey stories about how it was how it was when the Emancipation Proclamation came, how the black people hollered, cried, and sang, and ghost stories about how a white man cut off his wife's head and buried her in the swamp, and the headless body came out at night and went stumbling around the yard, knocking over stuff because it couldn't see and crying all the time for a comb. They talked about the women Blue had had and the fights he'd been in when he was younger, about how he talked his way out of getting lynched once, and how others hadn't. Charlie loved Blue. Long after he was a man, he remembered the good times they had had. How on a July 4th at a church picnic, a family was about to break open a watermelon. Several children were standing around watching. Blue was hovering about on the periphery of the circle, a faint smile of anticipation softening his face. 
The father of the family lifted the melon high over his head. His big arms looked taller than the trees to Charlie, and the melon blotted out the sun. Tall, head forward, eyes fastened on a rock, his arms higher than the pines, his hands holding a melon bigger than the sun, he paused an instant to get his bearing and secure his aim. Watching the figure etched against the bright blue sky, Charlie felt goose pimples popping along his arms and neck. He wondered if God looked like that. No. God was a nice old white man, with long white hair, flowing white beard, and little blue eyes that looked sad when people died and mean when they were bad. It must be the devil who looks like that. Holding the world in his hands, ready to dash it to the ground and spill the red guts so niggers could eat the sweet, warm insides. If the devil did look like that, Charlie preferred him. He never felt anything thinking about God, but just the idea of the devil excited him. And now the strong, black devil was blotting out the sun and getting ready to split open the world. Far away, somebody was playing a mouth organ. The music slithered over the cane fields and into the pine grove. It spiraled around the tree trunks and mixed itself with the pine scent. So Charlie couldn't tell the difference between the sound and the odor that hung about the heads of the people. The man swung the melon down to the edge of a rock. A soft cry of disappointment accompanied the sound of smashed rind. The break was a bad one. The melon was jagged and hunks of rind and red meat scattered on the grass. Blue jumped. Ah, 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 he moaned. There go the heart. His voice was both sad and pleased. Everybody looked to see the big red chunk from the very center of the melon, free of rind and sparse of seed, which had rolled a little distance from Blue's feet. He stooped to pick it up, blood red, its planes dull and blunted with sweetness, its edges rigid with juice. Too obvious, almost obscene, in the joy it promised. Go ahead, Blue, the father laughed. You can have it. Blue smiled and walked away. Little children scrambled for the pieces on the ground. Women picked out the seeds for the smallest ones and broke off little bits of the meat for themselves. Blue's eye caught Charlie's. He motioned to him. Come on, boy. Lest you and me eat the heart. Together, the old man and the boy sat on the grass and shared the heart of the watermelon, the nasty, sweet guts of the earth. It was in the spring, a very chilly spring, that Aunt Jimmy died of peach cobbler. She went to a camp meeting that took place after a rainstorm and the damp wood of the benches was bad for her. For four or five days afterwards, she felt poorly. Friends came to see about her. Some made chamomile tea. Others rubbed her with liniment. Miss Alice, her closest friend, read the Bible to her. Still, she was declining. Advice was prolific, if contradictory. Don't eat no whites of eggs. Drink new milk. Chew on this root. Aunt Jimmy ignored all but Miss Alice's Bible reading. She nodded in drowsy appreciation as the words from the first Corinthians droned over her. Sweet amens fell from her lips as she was chastised for all her sins, but her body would not respond. Finally, it was decided to fetch Madeir. Madeir was a quiet woman who lived in a shack near the woods. She was a competent midwife and decisive diagnostician. Jeez. 
Few could remember when Madeir was not around. In any illness that could not be handled by ordinary means, known cures, intuition, or endurance, the word was always, Fetch Madeir. When she arrived at Aunt Jimmy's house, Charlie was amazed at the sight of her. He had always pictured her as shriveled and hunched over, for he knew she was very, very old. But Madeir loomed taller than the preacher who accompanied her. She must have been over six feet tall. Four big white knots of hair gave powder, power and authority to her soft black face. Standing straight as a poker, she seemed to need her hickory stick not for support, but for communication. She tapped it lightly on the floor as she looked down at Aunt Jimmy's wrinkled face. She stroked the knob with the thumb of her right hand while she ran her left one over Aunt Jimmy's body. The backs of her long fingers she placed on the patient's cheek, then placed her palm on the forehead. She ran her fingers through the sick woman's hair, lightly scratching the scalp, and then looking at what the fingernails revealed. She lifted Aunt Jimmy's hand and looked closely at it. Fingernails. Back skin, the flesh of the palm she ple- pressed with three fingertips. Later, she put her ear on Aunt Jimmy's chest and stomach to listen. At Madeir's request, the women pulled the slop jar from under the bed to show the stools. Madeir tapped her stick while looking at them. Buried a slop jar and everything in it, she said to the women. To Aunt Jimmy, she said, You done caught a cold in, the w- in your womb. Drink pot liquor and nothing else. Will it pass, Aunt Jimmy? Asked Aunt Jimmy. Is I'm going to be all right? I reckon. Madeir turned and left the room. The preacher put her in his buggy to take her home. That evening, the women brought bowls of pot liquor from black-eyed peas, from mustards, from cabbage, from kale, from collards, from turnips, from beets, from green beans, even the juice from a boiling hog jaw. Two evenings later, Aunt Jimmy had gained much strength. When Miss Alice and Miss Gaines stopped in to check on her, they remarked on her improvement. The three women sat talking about various miseries they had had, their cure or abatement, what had helped. Over and over again, they returned to Aunt Jimmy's condition, repeating its cause. What could have been done to prevent the misery from taking hold and Madeir's infallibility? Their voices blended into a threnody of nostalgia about pain, rising and falling, complex in harmony, uncertain in pitch, but constant in the resuscitative of pain. They hugged the memories of illnesses to their bosoms. They licked their lips and checked their tongues in fond remembrance of pains they had endured, childbirth, rheumatism. Crop, sprains, backaches, piles. All of the bruises they had collected from moving about the earth. Harvesting, cleaning, hoisting, pitching, stooping, kneeling, picking. Always with young ones underfoot. But they had been young once. The odor of their armpits and haunches had mingled into a lovely musk. Their eyes had been furtive, their lips relaxed, and the delicate turn of their heads on those slim black necks had been like nothing other than than a doe's. Their later had been more touched than sound. Their laughter, excuse me, had been more touched than sound. Then they had grown, edging into life from the back door, becoming. 
Everybody in the world was in a position to give them orders. White women said, do this. White children said, give me that. White men said, come here. Black men said, lay down. The only people they need not take orders from were black children and each other. But they took all of that and recreated it in their own image. They ran the houses of white people and knew it. When white men beat their men, they cleaned up the blood and went home to receive abuse from the victim. They beat their children with one hand and stole from them with the other. The hands that felled trees also cut umbilical cords. The hands that wrung the necks of chickens and butchered hogs also nudged African violets into bloom. The arms that loaded sheaves, bales, and sacks rocked babies into sleep. They padded biscuits into flaky ovals of innocence and shrouded the death. They plowed all day and came home to nestle like plums under the limbs of their men. The legs that straddled a mule's back were the same ones that straddled their men's hips, and the difference was all the difference there was. Then they were old, their bodies honed, their odor sour, squatting in a cane field, stooping in a cotton field, kneeling by a riverbank, they had carried a world on their heads. They had given over the, the lives of their own children and tendered their grandchildren. With relief, they wrapped their heads in rags and their breasts in flannel, eased their feet into felt. They were through with lust and lactation beyond tears and terror. They alone could walk the roads of Mississippi, the lanes of Georgia, the fields of Alabama, unmolested. They were old enough to be irritable when and where they chose, tired enough to look forward to death, disinterested enough to accept the idea of pain while ignoring the presence of pain. They were, in fact, and at last, free. And the lives of these old black women were synthesized in their eyes. A puree of tragedy and humor, wickedness and serenity, truth and fantasy. They chattered far into the night, Charlie listened and grew sleepy. The lullaby of grief enveloped him, rocked him, and at last numbed him. In his sleep, the foul odor of an old woman's stools turned into the healthy smell of horseshit, and the voices of three women were muted into the pleasant notes of a mouth organ. He was aware in his sleep of being curled up in a chair, his hands tucked between his thighs. In a dream, his penis changed into a long hickory stick, and the hands caressing it were the hands of Madeir. On a wet Saturday night, before Aunt Jimmy felt strong enough to get out of the bed, Essie Foster brought her a peach cobbler. The old lady ate a piece, and the next morning, when Charlie went to empty the slop jar, she was dead. Her mouth was slackened, oh, and her hands, those long fingers with a man's hard nails, having done their laying by, could now be dainty on the sheet. One open eye looked at him as if to say, Mind how you take hold of that jar, boy. Charlie stared back, unable to move until a fly settled at the corner of her mouth. He fanned it away angrily, looked back at the eye, and did its bidding. On Jimmy's funeral was the first Charlie had ever attended. As a member of the family, one of the bereaved, he was the object of a great deal of attention. The ladies had cleaned the house, aired everything out, notified everybody, and stitched together what looked like a white wedding dress for Aunt Jimmy, a maiden lady, to wear when she met Jesus. 
They even produced a dark suit, white shirt, and tie for Charlie. The husband of one of them cut his hair. He was enclosed in fastidious tenderness. Nobody talked to him, that is. They treated him like the child he was, never engaging him in serious conversation. But they anticipated wishes he never had. Meals appeared. Hot water for the wooden tub. Clothes laid out. At the wake, he was allowed to fall asleep, and arms carried him to bed. Only on the third day after the death, the day of the funeral, did he have to share the spotlight. On Jimmy's people came from nearby towns and farms. Her brother, O.V., his children and wife, and lots of cousins. But Charlie was still the major figure because he was Jimmy's boy, the last thing she loved, and the one who found her. The solicitude of the women, the headpats of the men, pleased Charlie, and the creamy conversations fascinated him. What'd she die from? Essie's pie. Don't say. Uh-huh. She was doing fine. I saw her the very day before. Says she wanted me to bring her some black thread to patch some things for the boy. I should have known just from her one black thread that was a sign. Sure was. Just like Emma. Remember? She kept asking for thread. Dropped dead that very evening. Yeah. Well, she was determined to have it. Kept on reminding me. I told her I had some to home. But nah, she wanted it new. So I sent little June to get some that very morning when she was laying dead. I was just fixing to bring it over, along with a piece of sweet bread. You know how she craved my sweet bread. Sure did. I always bragged on it. She was a good friend to you. I believe it. Well, I had no more got my clothes on when Sally bust in the door hollering about how Charlie here had been over to Miss Alice saying she was dead. You could have knocked me over, I tell you. Guess Essie feels mighty bad. Oh, Lord, yes. But I told her the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Wasn't her fault none. She makes good peach pies. But she bound to believe it was the pie did it. And I expect she right. Well, she wouldn't worry herself none about that. She was just doing what we all would have done. Yeah, because I was sure wrapping up that sweet bread and that uh, could have done it too. I doubt that. Sweet bread is pure. But a pie is the worst thing to give anybody ailing. I'm surprised Jimmy didn't know better. If she did, she wouldn't let on. She would have tried to please. You know how she was. So good. I'll say, did she leave anything? Not even a pocket handkerchief. The house belongs to some white folks in Clarksville. Oh, yeah? I thought she owned it. May have at one time, but not no more. I hear the insurance folks been down talking to her brother. How much do it come to? $85, I hear. That all? Can she get in the ground on that? Don't see how. When my daddy died last year this April, it cost us $150. Of course, we had to have everything just so. Now, Jimmy's people may all have to chip in. That undertaker that lays out black folks ain't none too cheap. Seems a shame. She been paying on that insurance all her life. Don't I know? Well, what about the boy? What he gonna do? Well, can't nobody find that mama, so Jimmy's brother gonna take him back to his place. They say he got a nice place. 
inside toilet and everything. That's nice. He seems like a good Christian man, and the boy need a man's hand. What time's the funeral? Two o'clock. She ought to be in the ground by four. Where's the banquet? I heard Essie wanted it at her house. No, it's at Jimmy's. Her brother wanted it so. Well, it will be a big one. Everybody liked old Jimmy. Sure will miss her in the pew. The funeral banquet was a peal of joy after the thunderous beauty of the funeral. It was like a street tragedy with spontaneity tucked softly into the corners of a highly formal structure. The deceased was the tragic hero, the survivors, the innocent victims. There was the omnipresence of the deity, strophe and antistrophe, of the chorus of mourners led by the preacher. There was grief over the waste of life. She stunned wonder at the ways of God and the restoration of order in nature at the graveyard. Thus the banquet was the exaltation, the harmony, the acceptance of physical frailty, joy in the termination of misery, laughter, relief, a steep hunger for food. Charlie had not yet fully realized his aunt was dead. Everything was so interesting. Even at the graveyard he felt nothing but curiosity. And when his turn had come to view the body at the church, he had put his hand out to touch the corpse to see if it were really ice cold like everybody said. But he drew his hand back quickly. Aunt Jimmy looked so private, and it seemed wrong somehow to disturb that privacy. He had trudged back to his pew dry-eyed amid tearful shrieks and shouts of others, wondering if he should try to cry. Back in his house, he was free to join the gaiety and enjoy what he really felt, a kind of carnival spirit. He ate greedily and felt good enough to try to get to know his cousins. There was some question, according to the adults, as to whether they were his real cousins or not, since Jimmy's brother O.V. was only a half-brother, and Charlie's mother had been the daughter of Jimmy's sister, but that sister was from the second marriage of Jimmy's father, and O.V. was from the first marriage. One of these cousins interested Charlie in particular. He's about 15 or 16 years old. Charlie went outside and found the boy standing with some others near the rub where Aunt Jimmy used to boil her clothes. He ventured a tentative, hey. They responded with another. The 15-year-old named Jake offered Charlie a rolled-up cigarette. Charlie took it, but when he held the cigarette at arm's length and stuck the tip of it into the match flame, instead of putting it in his mouth and drawing on it, they laughed at him. Shamefaced, he threw the cigarette down. He felt it important to do something to reinstate himself with Jake. So when he asked Charlie if he knew any girls, Charlie said, Sure. All the girls Charlie knew were at the banquet, and he pointed to a cluster of them standing, hanging, draping on the back porch. Darlene, too. Charlie hoped Jake wouldn't pick her. Let's get some and walk, said Jake. The two boys sauntered over to the porch. Charlie didn't know how to begin. Jake wrapped his legs around the rickety porch rail and just sat there staring off into space as though he had no interest in them at all. He was letting them look him over and guardingly evaluating them in return. The girls pretended they didn't see the boys and kept on chattering. Soon their talk got sharp. The gentle teasing they had been engaged in with each other changed to bitchiness, a serious kind of making fun. That was Jake's clue. The girls were reacting to him. 
They had gotten a whiff of his manhood and were shivering for a place in his attention. Jake left the porch rail and walked right up to a girl named Suki, the one who had been most bitter in her making fun. Want to show me around? He didn't even smile. Charlie held his breath, waiting for Suki to shut Jake up. She was good at that, and well known for her sharp tongue. To his enormous surprise, she readily agreed and even lowered her lashes. Taking courage, Charlie turned to Darlene and said, Come on along. We just going down to the gully. He waited for her to screw up her face and say no or what for or some such thing. His feelings about her were mostly fear. Fear that she would not like him and fear that she would. His second fear materialized. She smiled and jumped down the three leaning steps to join him. Her eyes were full of compassion and Charlie remembered that he was the bereaved. If you want to, she said, but not too far. Mama said we gotta leave early and it's getting dark. The four of them moved away. Some of the other boys had come to the porch and were about to begin that partly hostile, partly indifferent, partly desperate mating dance. Suki, Jake, Darlene, and Charlie walked through several backyards until they came to an open field. They ran across it and came to a dry riverbed lined with green. The object of the walk was a wild vineyard where the muscadine grew. Too new, too tight to have much sugar, they were eaten anyway. None of them wanted, not then. The grapes easy relinquishing all of its dark juice. The restraint, the holding off, the promise of sweetness that had yet to unfold excited them more than full ripeness would have done. At last, their teeth were on edge, and the boys diverted themselves by pelting the girls with the grapes. Their slim, black boy wrists made G-clefts in the air as they executed the tosses. The chase took Charlie and Darlene away from the lip of the gully, and when they paused for breath, Jake and Suki were nowhere in sight. Darlene's white cotton dress was stained with juice. Her big blue hair bow had come undone and the sundown breeze was picking it up and fluttering it about her head. They were out of breath and sank down in the green and purple grass on the edge of pine woods. Charlie lay on his back, panting, his mouth full of the taste of muscadine, listening to the pine needles rustling loudly in their anticipation of rain. The smell of promised rain, pine, and muscadine made him giddy. The sun had gone down, had gone and pulled away at its shreds of light. Turning his head to see where the moon was, Charlie caught sight of Darlene in moonlight behind him. She was huddled into a D, arms encircling drawn-up knees on which she rested her head. Charlie could see her bloomers in the muscles of her young thighs. We beg it on back, he said. Yeah. She stretched her legs flat on the ground and began to retie her hair ribbon. Mama gonna whoop me. Nah, she ain't. Uh-huh, she told me she would if I get dirty. You ain't dirty. I am too, look at that. She dropped her hands from the ribbon and smoothed out a place on her dress where the grape stains were heaviest. Charlie felt sorry for her. It was just as much his fault. Suddenly he realized that Aunt Jimmy was dead, for he missed the fear of being whipped. <sighs> Excuse me. There was nobody to do it except Uncle O.V., and he was the bereaved, too. Let me, he said. 
He rose to his knees facing her and tried to tie her ribbon. Darlene put her hands under his open shirt and rubbed the damp, tight skin. When he looked at her in surprise, she stopped and laughed. He smiled and continued knotting the bow. She put her hands back under his shirt. Hold still, he said. How I gonna get this? She tickled his ribs with her fingertips. He giggled and grabbed his ribcage. They were on top of each other in a moment. She corkscrewing her hands into his clothes. He returning the play, digging into the neck of her dress and then under her dress. When he got his hand in her bloomers, she suddenly stopped laughing and looked serious. Charlie, frightened, was about to take his hand away, but she held his wrist so he couldn't move it. He examined her then with his fingers, and she kissed his face and mouth. Charlie found her musketine-lipped mouth distracting. Darlene released his head, shifted her body, and pulled down her pants. After some trouble with the buttons, Charlie dropped his pants down to his knees. Their bodies began to make sense to him, and it was not difficult as it was not as difficult as he had thought it would be. She moaned a little, but the excitement collecting inside of him made him close his eyes and regard her moans as no more than pine sighs over his head. Just as he felt an explosion threatened, Darlene froze and cried out. He thought he had hurt her, but when he looked at her face, she was staring wildly at something over his shoulder. He jerked around. There stood two white men, one with a spirit lamp, the other with a flashlight. There was no mistake about their being white. He could smell it. Charlie jumped, trying to kneel, stand, and get his pants up all in one motion. The men had long guns. <laughs> the snicker was a long, asthmatic cough. The other raced the flashlight all over Charlie and Darlene. Get on with it, nigger, said the flashlight one. Sir, said Charlie, trying to find a buttonhole. I said, get on with it and make it good, nigger. Make it good. There was no place for Charlie's eyes to go. They slid about furtively, searching for shelter, while his body remained paralyzed. The flashlight man lifted his gun down from his shoulder, and Charlie heard the clop of metal. He dropped back to his knees. Darlene had her head averted, her eyes staring out of the lamplight into the surrounding darkness, and looking almost unconcerned, as though they had no part in the drama taking place around them. With a violence born of total helplessness, he pulled her dress up, lowered his trousers and underwear. <laughs> Darlene put her hands over her face as Charlie began to simulate what had gone on before. He could do no more than make believe. The flashlight made a moon on his behind. <laughs> Come on, coon, faster. You ain't doing nothing for her. <laughs> Charlie, moving faster, looked at Darlene. He hated her. He almost wished he could do it. Hard, long, and painfully, he hated her so much. The flashlight wormed its way into his guts and turned the sweet taste of muscadine into rotten, fetid bile. 
He stared at Darlene's hands covering her face in the moon and lamplight. They looked like baby claws. <laughs> Some dogs howled. That's them. That's them. I know that's old honey. Yep, said the spirit lamp. Come on. The flashlights turned away and one of them whistled to honey. Wait, said the spirit lamp. The coon ain't comed yet. Well, he have to come on his own time. Good luck, coon baby. They crushed the pine needles underfoot. Charlie could hear them whistling for a long time. And then the dogs answered no longer a howl, but warm, excited yelps of recognition. Charlie raised himself and in silence buttoned his trousers. Darlene did not move. Charlie wanted to strangle her, but instead he touched her leg with his foot. We gotta get, girl. Come on. She reached for her underwear with her eyes closed and could not find them. The two of them padded about in the moonlight for the panties. When she found them, she put them on with the movements of an old woman. They walked away from the pine woods toward the road, he in front, she plopping along behind. It started to rain. That's good, Charlie thought. It'll explain away our clothes. When they got back to the house, some ten or twelve guests were still there. Jake was gone. Suki, too. Some people had gone back for more helpings of food. Potato pie, ribs. All were engrossed in early night reminiscences of dr about dreams, figures, premonitions. Their stuffed comfort was narcotic and had produced recollections and fabrications of hallucinations. Charlie and Darlene's entrance produced only a mild stir. Y'all soaked, ain't you? Darlene's mother was only vaguely fussy. She had eaten and drunk too much. Her shoes were under her chair and the side snaps of her dress were open. Girl, come on in here. Thought I told you. Some of the guests thought they would wait for the rain to slacken. Others who had come in wagons thought they'd best leave now. Charlie went into the little storeroom which had been made into a bedroom for him. Three infants were sleeping on his cot. He took off his rain and pine-soaked clothes and put on his coveralls. He didn't know where to go. On Jimmy room, on Jimmy's room was out of the question, and Uncle Ovi and his wife would be using it later anyway. He took a quilt from a trunk, spread it on the floor, and lay down. Somebody was brewing coffee, and he had a sharp craving for it, just before falling asleep. The next day was cleaning out day, settling accounts, distributing on Jimmy's goods. Mouths were set in, downward in crescents, eyes veiled, feet tentative. Charlie floated about aimlessly, doing chores as he was told. All the glamour and warmth the adults had given him on the previous day were replaced by a sharpness that agreed with his mood. He could think only of the flashlight, the muscadines, and Darlene's hands. And when he was not thinking of them, the vacancy in his head was the, like the space left by a newly pulled tooth still conscious of the rottenness that had once filled it. Afraid of running into Darlene, he would not go far from the house, but neither could he endure the atmosphere of his dead aunt's house. The pick, picking through her things, the comments on the condition of her goods, sullen, irritable, he cultivated his hatred of Darlene. Never did he once consider directing his hatred toward the hunters. Such an emotion would have destroyed him. They were big, white-armed men. 
he was small, black, helpless. His subconscious knew what his conscious mind did not guess, that hating them would have consumed him, burned him up like a piece of soft coal, leaving only flakes of ash and a question mark of smoke. He was in time to discover that hatred of white men, white men, but not now, not in impotence, but later when the hatred could find sweet expression. For now, he hated the one who had created the situation, the one who bore witness to his failure, his impotence, the one whom he had not been able to protect, to spare, to cover from the round moon glow of the flashlight, the he-he-he's. He recalled Darlene's dripping hair ribbon flapping against her face as they walked back in silence in the rain. The loathing that galloped through him made him tremble. There was no one to talk to. Old Blue was too drunk too often these days to make sense. Besides, Charlie doubted if he could reveal his shame to Blue. He would have to lie a little to tell Blue. Blue, the woman killer. It seemed to him that lonely was much better than alone. The day Charlie's uncle was ready to leave, when everything was packed, when the quarrels about who gets what had seethed down to a sticking gravy on everybody's tongue, Charlie sat on the back porch waiting. It had occurred to him that Darlene might be pregnant. It was a wildly irra irrational, completely uninformed idea, but the fear it produced was complete enough. He had to get away. Never mind the fact that he was leaving that very day. A town or two away was not far enough, especially since he did not like or trust his uncle, and Darlene's mother could surely find him, and Uncle O.V. would turn him over to her. Charlie knew it was wrong to run out on a pregnant girl, and recalled, with sympathy, that his father had done just that. Now he understood. He knew then what he must do. Find his father. His father would understand. Aunt Jimmy said he had gone to Macon. With no more thought than a chick leaving it its shell, he stepped off the porch. He had gotten a little way when he remembered the treasure. Aunt Jimmy had left something, and he had forgotten all about it. In a stove flue no longer used, she had hidden a little meal bag which she called her treasure. He slipped into the house and found the room empty. Digging into the flue, he encountered webs and soot and then the soft bag. He sorted the money, 14 $1 bills, two $2 bills, and lots of silver change, $23 in all. Surely that would be enough to get to Macon. What a good, strong-sounding word, Macon. Running away from home for a Georgia black boy was not a great problem. You just sneaked away and started walking. When night came, you slept in a barn, if there were no dogs, a cane field, or an empty sawmill. You ate from the ground and bought root beer and licorice in little country stores. There was always an easy tale of woe to tell inquiring black adults, and whites didn't care unless they were looking for sport. When he was several days away, he could go to the back door of nice houses and tell the black cook or white mistress that he wanted a job weeding, plowing, picking cleaning and that he lived nearby a week or more there and he could take off he lived this way through the turn of summer and 
Only the following October did he reach a town big enough to have a regular bus station. Dry-mouthed with excitement and apprehension, he went to the color side of the counter to buy his tick. How much to make in, sir? Eleven dollars. Five fifty for children under twelve. Charlie had twelve dollars and four cents. How old you be? Just on twelve, sir. But my mama only give me ten dollars. You just about the biggest twelve I ever seed. Please, sir. I got to get to making. My mama's sick. Thought you said your mama give you ten dollars. That's my play mama. My real mama is in making, sir. I reckon I knows a lying nigger when I sees one. But just in case you ain't. Just in case you one of them mammies is really dying and wants to see her little old smoke before she meets her maker, I gon' do it. Charlie heard nothing. The insults were part of the nuances of life, like lice. He was happier than he had ever remembered being, except that time with Blue and the watermelon. The bus wasn't leaving for four hours, and the minutes of those hours struggled like gnats on flypaper, dying slow, exhausted with the fight to stay alive. Charlie was afraid to stir, even to relieve himself. The bus might leave while he was gone. Finally, rigid with constipation, he boarded the bus to Macon. He found a window seat in the back all to himself, and all of Georgia slid before his eyes until the sun shrugged out of sight. Even in the dark, he hungered to see, and only after the fiercest fight to keep his eyes open did he fall asleep. When he awoke, it was very well into day, and a fat black lady was nudging him with a biscuit gashed with cold bacon. With the taste of bacon still in his teeth, they sidled into making. At the end of the alley, he could see men clustered like grapes, one large whooping voice spiraled over the heads of the bended forms, the kneeling forms, the leaning forms, all intent on one ground spot. As he came closer, he inhaled a rife and stimulating man smell. The men were gathered just as the man in the pool hall had said for about for about excuse me. For an about dice and money, each figure was decorated some way with the slight pieces of green. Some of them had separated their money, folded the bills around their fingers, clenched the fingers into fists, so the neat ends of the money stuck out in a blend of daintiness and violence. Others had stacked their bills, creased them down the middle, and held the wad as though they were about to deal cards. Still others had left their money in loosely crumpled balls. One man had money sticking out from under his cap. Another stroked his bills with a thumb and forefinger. There was more money sticking out from under his cap. There were, I'm sorry, there was more money in those black hands than Charlie had ever seen before. He shared their excitement, and the dry mouth apprehension on meeting his father gave way to the saliva flow of excitement. He glanced at the faces, looking for the one who might be his father. How would he know him? Would he look like a larger version of himself? At that moment, Charlie could not remember what his own self looked like. He only knew he was 14 years old, black, and already six feet tall. He searched the faces and saw only eyes, pleading eyes, cold eyes, eyes gone flat with malice, others laced with fear. 
all focused on the movement of a pair of dice that one man was throwing, snatching up, and throwing again. Chanting a kind of litany to which the others responded, rubbing the dice as though they were two hot coals, he whispered to them. Then with a whoop, the cubes flew from his hand to a chorus of amazements and disappointments. Then the thrower scooped up money and someone shouted, Take it and crawl, you water dog. You, the best I know. There was some laughter and a noticeable release of tension during which some men exchanged money. Charlie tapped an old white-haired man on the back. Can you tell me, is Samson Fuller around here somewhere? Fuller. The name was familiar to the man's tongue. I don't know. He here somewhere. There he is, in the brown jacket. The man pointed. A man in a light brown jacket stood at the far end of the group. He was gesturing in a quarrelsome, agitated manner with another man. Both of them had folded their faces on anger. Charlie edged around to where they stood, hardly believing he was at the end of his journey. There was his father, a man like any other man, but there indeed were his eyes, his mouth, his whole head. His shoulders lurked beneath that jacket. His voice, his hands, all real. They existed, really existed somewhere, right here. Charlie had always thought of his father as a giant of a man, so when he was very close, it was with a shock that he discovered that he was taller than his father. In fact, if he was staring at a balding, in fact, he was staring at a balding spot on his father's head, which he suddenly wanted to stroke. While thus fascinated by the pitiable clean space hedged around by neglected tufts of wool, the man turned a hard, belligerent face to him. What you want, boy? Uh, I mean, is you Samson Fuller? Who sent you? Huh? You Melba's boy? No, sir, I'm... Charlie blinked. He could not remember his mother's name. Had he ever known it? What could he say? Whose boy was he? He couldn't say. I'm your boy. That sounded disrespectful. The man was impatient. Something wrong with your head? Who told you to come after me? Nobody. Charlie's hands were sweating. The man's eyes frightened him. I, I just thought, I mean, I was just wandering around and uh, my name is Charlie. But Fuller had turned back to the game that was about to begin anew. He bent down to toss a bill on the ground and waited for a throw. When it was gone, he stood up and in a vexed and whiny voice shouted at Charlie, Tell that bitch I should get her money. Now get the fuck out of my face. Charlie was a long time picking his foot up from the ground. He was trying to back up and walk away. Only with extreme effort could he get the first muscle to cooperate. When it did, he walked back up the alley out of its shade toward the blazing light of the street. As he emerged into the sun, he felt something in his legs give way. An orange crate with a picture of clasping hands pasted on its side was upended on the sidewalk. Charlie sat down on it. The sun sign dropped like honey on his head. A horse-drawn fruit wagon went by, its driver singing, Fresh from the vine, sweet as sugar, red as wine. Noises seemed to increase in volume. The click-clock of the women's heels, the laughter of idling men in doorways. There was a streetcar somewhere. Charlie sat. 
He knew if he was very still, he would be all right. But then the trace of pain edged his eyes, and he had to use everything to send it away. If he was very still, he thought, and kept his eyes on one thing, the tears would not come. So he sat in the dripping honey sun, pulling every nerve and muscle into service to stop the fall of water from his eyes. While straining in this way, focusing every urge of energy on his eyes, his bowels suddenly opened up, and before he could realize what he knew, liquid stools were running down his legs. At the mouth of the alley where his father was, on an orange crate in the sun, on a street full of grown men and women, he had soiled himself like a baby. In panic, he wandered. He wondered should he wait there, not moving until nighttime. No, his father would surely emerge and see him and laugh. Oh, Lord, he would laugh. Everybody would laugh. There was only one thing to do. Charlie ran down the street, aware only of silence. People's mouths moved, their feet moved, a car jugged by, but with no sound. A door slammed in perfect soundlessness. His own feet made no sound. The air seemed to strangle him, hold him back. He was pushing through a world of invisible pine sap that threatened to smother him. Still he ran, seeing only silent moving things until he came to the end of buildings, the beginning of open space, and saw the Akmulgi River winding ahead. He scooted down a gravelly slope to a pier jutting out over the shallow water. Finding the deepest shadow under the pier, he crouched in it behind one of the posts. He remained knotted there in fetal position, paralyzed, his fist covering his eyes for a long time. No sound, no sight, only darkness and heat, the press of his knuckles on his eyelids. He even forgot his messed up trousers. Evening came. The dark, the warmth, the quiet enclosed Charlie like the skin and flesh of an elderberry protecting its own seed. Charlie stirred, the ache in his head was all he felt. Soon, like bright bits of glass, the events of that afternoon cut into him. At first he saw only money in black fingers. Then he thought he was sitting on an uncomfortable chair. But when he looked, it turned out to be the head of a man, a head with a bald spot the size of an orange. When finally these bits emerged, merged into full memory, Charlie began to smell himself. He stood up and found himself weak, trembling, and dizzy. He leaned for a moment on the pier post, then took off his pants, underwear, socks, and shoes. He rubbed handfuls of dirt on his shoes, then he crawled to the river edge. He had to find the water's beginning with his hands, for he could not see it clearly. Slowly, he swirled his clothes in the water and rubbed them until he thought they were clean. Back near his post, he took off his shirt and wrapped it around his waist, then spread his trousers and underwear on the ground. He squatted down and picked at the rotted wood of the pier. Suddenly, he thought of his Aunt Jimmy, her ass fatiga bag, her four gold teeth, and the purple rag she wore around her head. With a longing that almost split him open, he thought of her handing him a bit of smoked hawk out of her, her dish. He remembered how, just how she held it, clumsy-like, in three fingers, but with so much affection. No words, just picking up a bit of meat and holding it out to him, and then the tears rushed down his cheeks to make a bouquet under his chin. Three women are leaning out of two windows. They see the long, clean neck of a new young boy and call to him. He goes to where they are. Inside, it is dark and warm. They give him lemonade in a mason jar. As he drinks, their eyes float up to him through the bottom of the jar, through the slick, sweet water. 
They give him back his manhood, which he takes aimlessly. The pieces of Charlie's life could become coherent only in the head of a musician. Only those who talk their talk through the gold of curved metal or in the touch of black and white rectangles and taut skins and strings echoing from wooden corridors could give true form to his life. Only they would know how to connect the heart of a red watermelon to the asphatiga bag, to the muscadine, to the flashlight on his behind, to the fists of money, to the lemonade in a mason jar, to a man called Blue, and come up with what all of that meant in joy and pain and anger and love, and give it its final and pervading ache of freedom. Only a musician would sense, no, without even knowing that he knew that Charlie was free, dangerously free. Free to feel whatever he felt. Fear, guilt, shame, love, grief, pity. Free to tender or, or, or violent, to whistle or weep. Free to sleep in doorways or between the white sheets of a singing woman. Free to take a job, free to leave it. He could go to jail and not feel in prison, for he had already seen the furtiveness in the eyes of his jailer. Free to say, no, sir and smile, for he had already killed three white men, free to take a woman's insults, for his body had already conquered hers, free even to knock her in the head, for he had already cradled that head in his arms, free to be gentle when she was sick, or mop her floor, for she knew what and where his maleness was. He was free to drink himself into a silly helplessness, for he had already been a gandy dancer, done thirty days on a chain gang, and picked a woman's bullet out of the calf of his leg. He was free to live his fantasies and free even to die, the how and the when of which held no interest for him. In those days, Charlie was truly free, abandoned in a junk heap by his mother, rejected for a crap game by his father. There was nothing more to lose. He was alone with his own perceptions and appetites, and they alone interested him. It was in this godlike state that he met Pauline Williams, and it was Pauline, or rather marrying her, that did for him what the flashlight did not do. The constantness, varietylessness, the sheer weight of the sameness drove him to despair and froze his imagination. To be required to sleep with the same woman forever was a curious and unnatural idea to him, to be expected to dredge up enthusiasm for old acts and routine ploys. He wondered at the arrogance of the female. When he met Pauline in Kentucky, she was hanging over a fence, scratching herself with a broken foot. The neatness, the charm, the joy he awakened in her made him want to nest with her. He had yet to discover what destroyed that desire, but he did not dwell on it. He thought rather of whatever happened to the curiosity he used to feel. Nothing, nothing interested him now. Not himself, not other people. Only in drink was there some break, some floodlight. And when that closed, there was oblivion. But the aspect of marriage life that dumbfounded him and rendered him totally dysfunctional was the appearance of children. Having no idea how to raise children and having never watched any parent raise himself, he could not even comprehend what such a relationship should be. Had he been interested in the accumulation of things, he could have thought of them as his material heirs. Had he needed to prove himself to some nameless others, he could have wanted them to excel in his own image and for his own sake. He had, had he not been alone in the world since he was 13, knowing only a dying old woman who felt responsible for him, but whose age, sex, and interests were so remote from his own, he might have felt a stable connection between himself and the children. 
As it was, he reacted to them, and his reactions were based on what he felt at the moment. So it was on a Saturday afternoon, in the thin light of spring, he staggered home, reeling drunk, and saw his daughter in the kitchen. She was washing dishes, her small back hunched over the sink. Charlie saw her dimly and could not tell what she, what he saw or what he felt. Then he became aware that he was uncomfortable. Next, he felt the discomfort dissolve into pleasure. The sequence of his emotions was revulsion, guilt, pity, then love. His revulsion was a reaction to her young, helpless, hopeless presence. Her back hunched that way, her head to one side as though crouching from a permanent and unrelieved blow. Why did she have to look so whipped? She was a child, unburdened. Why wasn't she happy? The clear statement of her misery was an accusation. He wanted to break her neck, but tenderly. Guilt and impotence rose in a bilious duet. What could he do for her, ever? What give her? What say to her? What could a burned-out black man say to the hunchback of his 11-year-old daughter? If he looked into her face, he would see those haunted, loving eyes. The hauntedness would irritate him. The love would move him to fury. How dare she love him? Hadn't she any sense at all? What was he supposed to do about that? Return it? How? What could his callous hands produce to make her smile? What if his knowledge of the world and of life could be useful to her? What could his heavy arms and befuddled brain accomplish that would earn him his own respect, that would, in turn, allow him to accept her love? His hatred of her slimed into his stomach and threatened to become vomit. But just before the puke moved from anticipation to sensation, she shifted her weight and stood on one foot, scratching the back of her calf with her toe. It was a quiet and pitiful gesture. Her hands were going around and around a frying pan, scraping flecks of black into the cold, greasy dishwater. The timid, tucked-in look of the scratching toe. That was what Pauline was doing the first time he saw her in Kentucky. Leaning over a fence, staring at nothing in particular. The creamy toe of her bare foot scratching a velvet leg. It was such a small and simple gesture, but it filled him then with a wondering softness. Not the usual lust to part tight legs with his own, but a tenderness, a protectiveness, a desire to cover her foot with his hand and gently nibble away the itch from the calf with his teeth. He did it then and started Pauline into laughter. He did it now. The tenderness welled up in him, and he sank to his knees, his eyes on the foot of his daughter. Crawling on all fours toward her, he raised his hand and caught the foot in an upward stroke. Pecola lost her balance and was about to careen to the floor. Charlie raised his other hand to her lips to save her from to her hips to save her from falling. He put his head down and nibbled at the back of her leg. His mouth trembled at the firm sweetness of the flesh. He closed his eyes, letting his fingers dig into her waist. The rigidness of her shocked body, the silence of her stunned throat, was better than Pauline's easy laughter had been. The confused mixture of his memories of Pauline and the doing of a wild and forbidden thing excited him, and a bolt of desire ran down his genitals, giving it length and softening the lips of his anus. Surrounded all of this lust was a border of politeness. He wanted to fuck her tenderly, but the tenderness was not hold. The tightness of her vagina was more than he could bear. His soul seemed to slip down to his guts and fly out into her, and that gigantic thrust he made into her then provoked the only sound she made, a hollow suck of air in the back of her throat. 
like the rapid loss of air from a circus balloon. Following the disintegration, the following away of sexual desire, he was conscious of her wet, soapy hands on his wrists, the fingers clenching. But whether her grip was from a hopelessness but stubborn struggle to be free or from some other emotion, he could not tell. I'm sorry, we've run out of time.